This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Emily Witt, author of Future Sex, A New Kind of Free Love. In this journalistic first-person narrative, Witt explores internet dating and pornography, polyamory, birth control, sexual webcamming, and other subcultures with a goal of understanding her own sexuality, how we connect with one another with and without touch, and what communities and choices exist in America outside of a traditional monogamous relationship. We began the interview discussing what she had to overcome, considering the personal nature of her book, and what her friends, colleagues, and parents would think of it. At first, I just wouldn't even admit to myself that I was looking into these subcultures for personal reasons. I thought of the book as a totally journalistic project, and I think for me... You know, I knew that I was interested in the subject for personal reasons because I had just turned 30 and I just, I don't know, there was all these possibilities, there were all these possibilities out there and I just hadn't let myself consider them before. But I think when I started to give myself permission to try different things, I had to pretend it was about journalism, that I was writing a book in the third person and not in the first person, that it was kind of like a sober cultural history of sex since roughly 1990. That's what I would kind of tell people. And then when I would go, I don't know, when I would go visit the porn set or go visit the orgasmic meditators, I would sort of make fun of them to my friends so that they knew I hadn't lost my mind. And then when it came to the writing and I realized this, these were far more personal questions than I'd anticipated, um, yeah, I had a lot of anxiety about my parents reading it, about, um, you know, New York magazine editors that I write for reading it and never giving me another assignment because they wouldn't take me seriously anymore. I worried that nobody would ever want to date me again if I talked too openly about my sex life, all of which was not true, Um, turned out not to be true, except that my parents are not crazy about the book. That part is true. What was the impetus for you to decide, okay, I'm going to write Future Sex and explore these things? What happened in your life that led you in this direction? It was partially my own personal situation of reaching an age where I had always just assumed that I would be partnered up by that age, by 30 or around then. And it just seemed like there was, it just wasn't going to happen. And then I never had really questioned whether I wanted that. Um, And at the same time, out in the culture and in the things I was reading, I was reading all these sort of lamentations about contemporary sexuality, you know, articles that would say how internet porn is bad for women. And I don't know, or internet porn is like, changing all our expectations of sex and there's no more authentic sex. There's only performative sex and women just need to look like porn stars to please their boyfriends. Or I would read an article, you know, these kind of self-help articles that would say like, you know, like the case for settling, like, oh, you'll never be happy unless you just accept the imperfect boyfriend. And I found all of them really pessimistic and they all seem to come from an underlying 
change in cultural reality, which was that people were getting married much later or not at all. Um, there'd been a shift in technology and there'd been kind of social and moral change where we were much more accepting of a range of sexual identities and practices. And for me, the way that this was all being interpreted pessimistically was really unsatisfying. Um, you know, to read an article about quote unquote hookup culture that framed it as this consumer marketplace um, where everybody was just treating each other terribly and and performing for each other and kind of, I don't know, this like fake happiness that was being presented. Um, you know, that wasn't helpful to me in my own loneliness um, and my own sense of dissatisfaction. So that's kind of, I wanted to write something that looked at these new possibilities optimistically, um, you know, to see whether within this newfound sexual freedom there could be joy and connection and stability and emotional fulfillment. Did you find it? I think I did, yeah. I found that just focusing on my sexuality first instead of romantic stories or an idea of the perfect person that I wanted to date. Just kind of a study of what turned me on and what directions my sexuality pointed me in, kind of, um, and kind of looking at that with more honesty than I ever had before. That was really helpful to me. It, it turned out I'd had this kind of compass within me the whole time that I hadn't really realized I'd had. One of the things you, you write about that goes hand in hand with this idea of women exploring their sexuality on their own terms was that you said if women couldn't be free sexually then it left men as the sole rational agents of sexual narrative now that you've been through all of this do you think that that's still the case for most people it did change the narrative in your mind in how you look at it i'm curious about this passage it, it definitely did in this way that's kind of purely in the realm of ideas, and yet it seems to come out into my life. But, but you know, basically what I was saying in that passage was there's a very scarce commodity, which is the perfect, loving, equal, monogamous relationship which is really hard for many of us to find. Um, and then there's this other thing that's in abundance, I think especially if you're a woman, which is just the possibility of having sex. I mean, we all know how easy it is if you just want sex to get that kind of attention. And I'd always devalue that. I think the culture doesn't, you know, male sexual attention for women comes pretty cheaply. And I'd never seen that kind of bountiful <laughs> source of attention as valuable. To me, it was like, yeah, that's there, but I want to get, I want the boyfriend that's going to make me breakfast in the morning or whatever. Um, so it was kind of by focusing on this thing that I knew was out there in abundance and sort of treating that as real and looking to find happiness within what was really available to me easily just kind of changed my mindset. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Emily Witt, 
author of Future Sex. This interview was recorded on Skype. So did you find in some of these communities you entered, you entered the porn community, you entered a community that's really exploring the female orgasm, you worked with people who were webcamming. Did you find that they felt freer in some way? Yeah, I did because it it kind of gave me a sense of possibility that, I don't know, I just kind of emerged from meeting with all these different people with the sense that I never have to be alone. If I'm alone and lonely and miserable and not having any sexual connection to the world, it's because I made a choice. And what I realized is that all of these other realms, you know, of possibility, like going on a live webcam site and kind of having a mutual masturbation session with somebody. If I felt like, oh my God, I'm never going to meet anybody. Nobody's attracted to me. I'm by myself. I could turn on my computer and do that. That was something available to me. And even if I didn't, even if that wasn't how I defined happiness and wasn't the picture perfect happy ending, you know, in the storybook fairy tale sense that I'd always envisioned, um, it still made me feel comforted that, okay, my life might not work out this other way that I pictured, but I'm not going to be alone. There will be people that will want to have sex with me. I can find sexual community through alternative approaches that I just hadn't let myself consider as sites of possibility before. Well, the webcamming is an interesting option because a lot of things that you did were in San Francisco and could probably be found in plentiful numbers in large cities. But Mm -hmm. the idea that that you came upon that you don't really ever have to be alone if you don't want to might not be as available for someone in rural Kentucky. So but the webcamming can be if you have a computer and an Internet. So can you talk about what that is and what you discovered with that? Yeah, um, so I got a magazine assignment to write about this site called Chatterbait. Um, and chatter is spelled like, it's spelled like masturbate, not like chatter. Um, and on that site, you know, it's just a live webcam site where you can start broadcasting from your computer and it's explicitly for most people, it's sexual in nature. Um, and the viewers can interact with the person that's broadcasting either by sort of chatting in the sidebar or by, um, doing what they call cam to cam, where you're you're essentially skyping or facetiming with each other. Um, and at first, I I started looking at this and writing about it, and I thought it was just um, you know really straightforward old school peep show dynamic. On the front page, you get there. There's a lot of women wearing kind of pornographic outfits or wearing nothing at all and acting kind of you know, to, in a way to sexually stimulate straight men. That's kind of what you see. And I was like, well, nothing new here. Um, but then when I became, when I spent more time on the site and I interviewed people, I started noticing that there were women that were on there. First of all, there was a group of women that were just doing really weird stuff that was kind of sexual, but also sometimes seemed to verge into performance art or something. And then when I interviewed people, you know, 
some women would tell me that this was the first time they had been able to, you know, they'd understood a certain fetish about themselves or the first time that they had, um, I don't know, that they could feel safe because they'd had some kind of sexual trauma and here in this like enclosed environment where they could turn people on and off, they felt really comfortable. Um, I met a woman voyeur who was on the other side of the dynamic. So she would go look at young men. She was an older woman and would look at younger men, you know, legal, legal men, but still in their early twenties, um, you know, and, and sometimes go into private chat sessions with them. And that, um, it was just really interesting to me that this site, contrary really to its design and to the mainstream, impression of it the kind of first impression that you get had these like secret communities and that women were using um to find themselves and get to know themselves in chatterbait you can make money from your performances so some people were trying to make money from this and you met a couple harper and max one of the things Max talked about, which I thought was so interesting, is when you think about sex and what sex is, people have, I think, very limited ideas. Maybe you're naked in bed with someone else. There's penetration. There's touching. There's something with your mouth. But he was saying he couldn't even tell you what it is after he and his girlfriend made so many movies. It was for some, he said, it was completely clothed, um, just putting... Pulling at your nostrils at a camera is sex, and it's a turn-on for them. I found that to be one of the most interesting comments in the book. That really opened, kind of blew my mind, too, because I realized that I had this idea, you know, and I was I was talking to my editor and stuff as I was doing this, and we were both like, wow, this is so zany and so crazy. And after a certain point, I was like, what kind of sex are we picturing as as kind of regular and safe and normal. And I, I think I describe it in the book as just like, oh, two people in a bed behind a closed door, that that's, that's such a narrow definition of sex. And then here on these sites, yeah, you realize, oh, like popping balloons with a stiletto is sex to somebody, like ripping off an apron, whatever. Um, so, yeah, it kind of... It, you know, a lot of the things I looked at in the book revealed my own conservatism and my own lack of imagination when it came to sexuality. Well, another place you went was a organization in California that has since changed its model a little bit since you went there, but it was called One Taste. Basic premise, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is female orgasm and orgasmic energy and what that brings, not just to the woman, but to the man. That was in the phase of writing and reporting where I was thinking of myself as just really straightforward journalist. And so I went there, you know, telling everybody I'm a reporter, I'm a reporter, um, I'm here to write about this place. And I knew they had there, you know, when you search them online, there's some accusations online that they're kind of cultish and stuff. But there's also, I don't know, it just was really interesting to me and I wanted to go check it out. So I did. I did their workshops. I tried the practice, which is a couple sits down and the man strokes, a, or the man, doesn't have to be a man, a partner strokes a woman, the woman's clitoris for 15 minutes. And it's done with, without the expectation of any kind of reciprocity or um, it's not considered foreplay. It's supposed to be something you can do between friends. Um, 
not about romance or about going asking somebody on a date. Um, that was the idea, at least. Um, so yeah, I at first thought of this as like completely crazy, and it made me really uncomfortable. And I tried it; still, kind of made me pretty uncomfortable. But as time passed, I came to understand that what they were doing was sort of important for somebody like me that had this repression I didn't even realize I had. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Emily Witt, author of Future Sex. This interview was recorded on Skype. During your exploration, and it sounds like some of these were assignments for magazines, but you did, you watched the porn, you went to Chatterbait, you went to One Taste, you explored internet dating. I'm just curious about the process of writing about all this because there, you probably took in so much stimulation every day from all of these things and then you had to distill it into these essays or chapters. What was that process like for you? It was really difficult. <laughs> um, you know, writing is hard always and this was harder than other things I've written because it was so, because I put myself in it and um, I was really writing against these kind of doom and gloom articles about the world today. And yet I would find myself constantly um, using their phraseology or, you know, mimicking the jargon that I would read. And so trying to write about this stuff in a way that felt at all original, you know, it was just tough questions. Like, what does it mean that you can go on the internet and search for any sexual fantasy you can imagine, pretty much? Um, that's a difficult question to answer. It, you know, The way that people had dealt with that in the past, I found, is they were also asking whether porn was good or bad, which is totally unhelpful because it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, it's, gonna, it's there in your life. So just, it just took me a long time, and not because I was procrastinating, although there was a lot of that too, but because I couldn't figure out what to say. And these were like deep intellectual questions that were really hard to decipher. One of the the beautiful things that you found in looking all this was, you know, as you're talking about the beginning and thinking about what sex is and maybe seeing beautiful people in movies having sex, that um, every you saw every type of body in porn. And I'm sure you saw every type of body at one taste as well. Um, Mm -hmm. How did that impact you? It just left me, again, with a sense of comfort um, and ease with the world that I just didn't have before. I just thought to be sexy meant to be a certain idea of beauty that was kind of commodified and that we all know what looks that, what a, quote, beautiful woman is supposed to look like, you know, and in watching and, you know, I just realized that sex is this kind of, it really is something that can resist commodification it's so weird and it's so non-negotiable what people are attracted to um and it left me with a sense of comfort that kind of no matter how old I got or what my body looked like that somebody would find something about me sexy and I wouldn't be alone and that was really I don't know it went counter to everything I'd ever believed before with the sexual realm and the dating realm and the heart realm the subtext of what you're talking about is that we maybe go into our adolescence or adulthood not thinking that much 
out of that romantic box and that if we don't sort of explore what it means for ourselves, either sexually or emotionally, we may end up feeling bad about what we don't get or getting something that doesn't make us happy because we haven't explored those realms of our minds and our bodies. Yeah, there's a quote from um, the gender theorist Susan Stryker that I read. It was in a London Review of Books article by Jacqueline Rose, and it was a speech that she gave. She's trans, and she said, I call upon you to investigate your nature as I have been compelled to confront mine. And when I, I read this, I'd already finished the book, and that was so... That it kind of I would have used it as an epigraph almost because we I do think we all have a duty to not think our preferences or the stories we're telling ourselves or the things we think we want are just natural um, that it helps to kind of see the ways in which they're contrived and unnatural yeah that was something that I was kind of documenting throughout the course of the book and you end it basically with the idea that America has a lot of respect for the future of objects and less interest in the future of human arrangements. Oh, I mean, I've noticed a lot of people have reviewed my book and said like, oh my God, it's not really futuristic at all or whatever, because I think they want sex robots or something. But we're embarking on a societal experiment that's been enabled by contraception and new technology and our changing morals, which is a total reinvention of the family of child rearing, you know, how to organize our sexual relationships outside of this institution of marriage. And and people are experimenting in all kinds of ways, whether it's co-parenting or people having babies solo, people living in communes of some kind, you know, a return to the possibility of communal living, which I think there was a kind of kind of got shut down for a while after the 70s as a viable idea. For many people and a kind of search for how to be healthy and connected and emotionally stable but also be sexually free that's you know that's a search that many people are undertaking right now and to me that is futuristic in science fiction that's always those kind of contemplation of different kinds of arrangements you know even in Arthur C. Clarke there's there's this kind of um, ideas being put forth. And somehow, from a governmental standpoint, from a research standpoint, I think there's less attention. It's kind of like soft science fiction versus hard science fiction or something. It's easier to talk about Mars than it is to talk about the new kind of family that we might all have. Can you share with me a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer? Yeah, I thought I would share something from Simone de Beauvoir because um, reading her memoir, The Prime of Life, was um, really important to me when I was writing this book because she was writing about a time of her life in, in the 30s, the 1930s, when she was in her 20s and early 30s, I think. And she had a lifelong partnership with Jean-Paul Sartre that was sexually open, I think almost from the beginning. Um, and she also made the determination that they would never live together because she would just fall into domestic roles prescribed for women. And um, she decided that she wouldn't have children because that would also put her in this position, make her into a person that she didn't want to be. 
So I thought I would read something that she wrote about the nature of their relationship. There were some experiences that each individual lived through alone. I had always maintained that words could not fully express the physical essence of reality, and now I must face the consequences. When I said, we are one person, I was dodging the issue. Harmony between two individuals is never a donné. It must be worked for continually. This I was prepared to admit. But another more painful question also posed itself. What was the true nature of such an achievement? We believed, and here phenomenology brought a long-standing tradition to our support, that time was something more than the sum of each separate instant, and that emotions existed above and beyond the heart's intermittent vagaries. But if they could be preserved only by promises and controls and passwords, would they not in the long run lose all their inward substance and come to resemble the whited sepulchers of the Bible? So that's a question where she's like, is it better? You know, there's all this cultural support for the difficulty of being in a monogamous relationship that, that asserts the, right, the rightness of your persevering through all the unhappiness of marriage can cause. And here she's kind of questioning that in a way I found interesting. And I have another little bit, it's much more of a kind of maybe greeting card, inspirational quote. She wrote, if a fraternity can be created by words, then writing is well worthwhile. What I wanted was to penetrate so deeply into other people's lives that when they heard my voice, they would get the impression they were talking to themselves. If my words multiplied through millions of human hearts, it would seem to me that my existence the reshaped and transfigured, would still, in a manner of speaking, survive. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Emily Witt, author of Future Sex. This interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft or just um, is an example of what you were trying to do? So this is when um, I'm at a workshop and this woman named Nicole Daydone is kind of going around the room and questioning people. And she's described that as a mental exercise, she makes a point of identifying who in the room she, quote, wants to f- um, And this is my response to that statement. This statement offended my propriety. Shouldn't I have the right to be in the world without having to contend with male desire? My whole life I had received strangers attempting to flirt with me with the graciousness of a fence post. It had always filled me with annoyance. I could never take it lightly as I saw my friends could when we were interrupted at a bar in the middle of an interesting conversation to endure a dull performance by a man. My first impulse was always to indicate that I wanted to be left alone as quickly as possible. Of all the things Nicole Daydone said to me, however, The idea of acknowledging and accepting the sexuality in a room, feeling it, naming it, and inhabiting it, was a kernel of a thing that I kept trying to dismiss but found I was unable to stop thinking about. To walk into a room and concentrate on the way my body responded to the people in it was a sexual inquiry I could conduct privately, without any risk. After thinking of what Nicole had said, I discerned a duplicity at work in the archive of my own perceptions whereby I had carefully excised my sexual awareness of other people from the naming of my experiences 
and pretended my own physical responses had not happened. I wondered what this facade of asexuality had cost me in confidence and decisiveness. Had I made choices on false pretenses? To shift my perception meant only that I began letting myself name when I wanted to stare at someone, or that I fought the impulse to look away when someone stared at me. I tried to notice the catalog of subtle urges or repulsions that I would never name or discuss out loud. I experimented with my responses to getting hit on or hollered at in the street, forcing myself to chat or nod, letting myself experience the unsettled feeling that came with a sexual overture just sitting in the feeling and trying to know it instead of immediately trying to close it down. It became apparent how much energy I expended in being affronted or wondering whether I should be affronted. Other women at One Taste would talk about conducting similar personal experiments. They might mention that they had spent a week sitting with their legs spread in public so as to test out the sense of entitlement or ownership over a space. So, you know, it's funny reading it even now. It's something that I felt uncertain about because, you know, I'm definitely not saying like, oh, it's good to get hollered at on the street. I love that. It was much more, I hoped that the re- it would be clear to readers that I was letting myself conduct a thought experiment. And weirdly, even though it's like not, it's so slight and small and something I'm doing in my own mind and not out in the world, um, it was a profound experiment to undertake for me. And it kind of was proof to me that a lot of sexual exploration is not about the empirical process of sleeping with as many people that you, as you can. It's actually a lot of different sort of thought experiments that you can undertake and just letting your mind open to something that you've been completely closed to before. Where do you write? You know, it's funny. I need to be by myself. It's like the most important thing. And when I was writing this book, I was living in a very, very small room in a shared apartment and there was nowhere to write there. So I got lucky. Somebody was renovating their apartment. And while they had the permitting process going on, they let me go work there every day and it didn't have the internet. And it was it was really what I needed. Sometimes I, I like to go to coffee shops too, but usually I, I really need to be alone, especially if I'm doing something really difficult. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? When I'm being healthy, I would say I go do yoga. That's always been really helpful to me. It kind of clears my mind. Um, but I also really, at the end of the day, it's really cathartic for me to just go have drinks with my friends. The reason I like living in New York is every night I can go out and do something. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It's funny. I'm really um, careful about not showing it to anybody except for my editor. An editor has been with you through the whole process and their job. You know, they don't have to be nice to you, whereas your friends, there's all this other sort of stuff caught up in it. So for me, that's, yeah, I don't show it to anybody until I kind of hand it in. And how have you dealt with rejection? You know, it's hard. When I was writing this book, it was kind of the beginning of my magazine writing career. I I quit my job at a newspaper and started freelancing. Um, And there was a year when every, I I made more money from magazine kill fees than I did from getting anything published. Like everything I wrote kept getting killed a lot of it material that's actually in the book, stuff like the um, the kink.com experience and um, the Burning Man 
experience. Those were for other magazines and they got killed. It was really hard for me because I felt like it was some of the best writing I'd ever done and I couldn't understand. And so I just had to kind of know that what I was doing, that it was being killed in some way because it was not something people had seen before or um, didn't fit into an institutional voice and not because I was a terrible writer, which I also definitely wondered. And what is your favorite word? That was funny. I don't know. I don't have a favorite word, but one word that I loved using every chance I could, especially when I was writing the book, was um, teledildonic, which is just like a very fun sci-fi word. And it means um, sex toys that are, you know, remotely connected to each other so that you can you could have a kind of live webcam FaceTime interaction and also operate each other's vibrators. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Emily Witt, author of Future Sex. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.